Our passage this morning is once again from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 21. Luke 13, verses 10 to 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her immediately. She was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall it compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your holy word, we pray, Lord, that you will help us to see what your kingdom is and how your kingdom advances. Help us to see, Lord, the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ in direct contrast to the bondage of legalism. We pray, Lord, that you would be help, help us to be transformed into the image of Christ and the power of your Spirit Work in our hearts, I pray this morning, that you might be glorified in us, that you might help us by your Spirit to bear fruit, the fruit of repentance for the advance of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jane and I have planted seeds in preparation for the growing season. So far, we planted tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers. Now, more are going to come later, but we wanted to give these particular seeds a head start because they grow a little bit more slowly than others. And as these seeds were put in the ground, they really didn't look like much, just, just little seeds. And now they've sprouted, little tiny plants, so fragile, so weak, but so full of potential. Now, we look after these, these little seedlings carefully. We, we, we water them 
very, very carefully every day. We, we put them outside during the day and then we bring them inside at night. And we put them on a, a heat pad to keep the, keep them warm. Yes, those little plants are so fragile and they're so weak, but, it, but they will, we trust, grow into large plants that they will bring forth fruit that we will enjoy. That in July we'll, we'll have peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers, hopefully enough to share. But to think about these little plants that, that really don't look like much, we're reminded of the fact that we should not, must not despise small beginnings. Think about what we saw in Luke 13, 6 to 9, with a fig tree. A large and, and well-established fig tree in the middle of a fruitful vine. It had been there for three years. It should have been producing much fruit, but it was barren. It produced no fruit whatsoever. This time we're going to see how Jesus works in seemingly small things for the glory of God. That, that what is big and and oppressive is, is not always, and quite often, not the way that God works. We see how Jesus shows compassion and tender care towards a woman with a crippling ailment. And this act was despised by the religious authorities that has huge implications for the advance of the kingdom of God. Again, what starts out small and weak brings forth much fruit for God's glory. The kingdom may seem hidden for a time, but it will advance in the hearts and the lives in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. You'll know them by their fruit. We're going to see this, this theme continue into next week in verses 22 to 30, Lord willing. Jesus has been warning his people that judgment is coming. They must repent and turn to him in faith. And so the question is, have the religious leaders listened? Have they listened to what Jesus said? Have they responded to what Jesus said? What about the crowds? Have they listened? Have they responded? Will there be repentance and faith, or does the fruit tree remain barren? This morning, we're going to see three key points. From verses 10 to 13, a woman healed. In verses 14 to 17, the Lord revealed. And then in verses 18 to 21, the kingdom concealed. So first of all, in verses 10 to 13, a woman healed. Our passage begins with Jesus teaching in a synagogue. Whereas in the early part of Jesus' ministry, he predominantly ministered within the synagogues. He taught regularly in the synagogues. But the situation has changed. As the, the, the hostility towards Jesus from the part of the religious authorities has increased, Jesus has moved his ministry to a large part outdoors, quite often in more remote places. This is the first time that, that we see Jesus in the synagogue in Luke's gospel account since Luke 9.51. It's also the last time Jesus will teach in the synagogue. Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem and towards his crucifixion. And the hostility from the religious leaders is going to deepen until it culminates in the cross. Now we're told here that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And Jesus was expounding the scriptures. He's expounding an Old Testament passage as we've seen him do before. And then he spots a woman who is doubled over. 
Her back is, is, is doubled over. So it's something probably akin to spond, spondylitis deformans, where the, the vertebrae are fused into one rigid mass, and the, and the person is basically seized up, doubled over, and they can't move. It's a debilitating and a painful illness. She, she was hunched over, weighed down with her malady. It, it, it's awful to see. Just the other day, as, as I was driving through town, I, I saw a homeless man on the side of the road pushing his shopping cart, and, and he was doubled over almost so that his, his head was almost level with his waist. It was so sad. But I can only imagine how it must have felt for Jesus as he saw this woman because he knew that there wasn't just a physical illness. There was spiritual. Luke, who, remember, is a physician, describes this as a disabling spirit. And later, in verse 16, we find out that her condition was actually satanic, that she was bound by Satan. And she'd been like that for 18 years. But there she was in the synagogue, doubled over, in pain, but worshiping God. I wonder how many people stay away from church with far weaker excuses. Jesus sees her. He doesn't wait until he finishes his sermon. He stops, he interrupts himself, immediately he stops teaching, and he calls her to himself. He takes the initiative. He reaches out to her. He says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. He lays hands on her. And immediately her twisted back becomes straight. She was freed. But she was freed not just from her disability. She was freed from Satan's power. Remember Jesus' own description of his ministry. Right back at the beginning in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this woman, 18 years she was like this, and now just like that, through the word and touch of Jesus, she is healed. Can you imagine? How does she respond? She glorifies God. She glorifies God for the ministry of Jesus Christ. She's praising God because of what Jesus Christ has done for her. This is a a common theme in Luke. Jesus was the one who spoke. Jesus is the one who laid hands on her, but he performed the miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Each has a different role in the work of God, but it is one work because God is one God. So Jesus doesn't think when when she glorifies God, he doesn't say, well, hey, what about me? She praises God and Jesus rejoices. I asked a moment ago if, if you could imagine you can imagine being in that situation, being like that woman. Well, brothers and sisters, you may have not been disabled with a hunched over back for 18 years. But you've been bound with something far more debilitating. Your sin. 
Your back might not have been twisted, but your heart was twisted. Have you been given a new heart? Have you been set free from bondage to Satan through the power of the Holy Spirit? Has Jesus set you free? Brothers and sisters, you don't need to imagine what it was like for that woman because you experienced you experienced the same freedom, same ultimate freedom that she experienced. So how you responded to Jesus, glorify God, praise Him for the liberty that you've been granted from Him through His life and His death and His resurrection. Glorify Him by telling others about who He is and how they can be set free too. Do you have loved ones who are still trapped in the burden and bondage of sin? Don't give up. Bring their names before the throne of grace. Share the gospel with them so that they can be set free to glorify God as well. So we've seen the woman healed. Now let's see the Lord revealed in verses 14 to 17. The woman glorified God in response to the ministry of Jesus, but now we see the polar opposite direction from the ruler of the synagogue. We've seen the opposition that Jesus has received at the hands of the religious authorities often enough by now that we would expect this kind of behavior from these religious authorities. The ruler of the synagogue was indignant. He was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, as the ruler of the synagogue, he presided over the proceedings of the synagogue. And so he addressed the crowd, not Jesus. It's as though he's presenting himself as the authority here above Jesus. He said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. In other words, she's already waited for 18 years for healing. What's another day? Now he's addressing the crowd, but it's Jesus that he's rebuking. The ruler of the synagogue has no idea who he's talking to or what he's talking about. He completely misunderstood the fourth commandment. He completely misunderstood the commandment to remember the Sabbath. He instead is relying on the Mishnah, the pharisaical teaching that added man-made rules to the law. In the Mishnah, there's a, a complex system of laws forbidding many forms of healing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees listed 39 other forms of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath in the Mishnah. And Jews remain under bondage to this man-made teaching even to this day. For example, if you go to Israel today and stay in a hotel, you, you will encounter what's called Sabbath elevators. Because of the, the command not to kindle a fire on the Sabbath, they be, believe that pushing a button and creating a, an electrical current is akin to kindling a fire. So when you step into a Sabbath elevator, you can't push the button on your floor. You, you, it opens on every single floor. It's insanity. 
And it completely undermines God's intent in giving man the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to be a blessing, not a burden. It was given as a creation ordinance long before he encoded it in the Mosaic Law. He laid down the pattern in Genesis chapter 2 when on the seventh day he rested. God didn't need to rest. He's omnipotent. He was setting aside a pattern. We still have a seven-day week because of the pattern of creation. These are the rhythms that God has built into creation. We neglect them at our own peril. In Exodus 20, in the, the giving of the Ten Commandments, God bids his people to remember the Sabbath, basing it on that pattern of seventh-day rest that he himself established. And he says that the, the, the day was given so that your family and your friends who are visiting, your servants and even your animals, have the opportunity to rest. And so we see a beautiful picture of the rest that God gives when Jesus heals this woman from her debilitating disease on the Sabbath. In the repetition of the Ten Commandments, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, God bases the Sabbath on the Jews having been set free from slavery in Egypt. Another beautiful picture is we see this, this woman being delivered from bondage to Satan on the Sabbath. In Isaiah 58, God bids us to call the Sabbath a delight. Did you think that those people living on the top floor of a high-rise in Israel are calling the Sabbath a delight as they slowly creep up step by step to their own, well, floor by floor, to their own apartment? Do you think the ruler of the synagogue called the Sabbath a delight? Well, it sure doesn't look like it. But wasn't that woman who had been set free by Jesus, wasn't she freed to delight in the Sabbath in a way that, that she had never even known yet when the Lord Jesus healed her? Now the ruler of the Sabbath did not, or the ruler of the synagogue rather, did not care that the woman glorified God in that moment. Well, I don't know what he was motivated by. But the Lord of the Sabbath has a very different motivation. In Mark 2.27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Speaking of the, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day Rest, the Puritan Lewis Bailey referred to it as God's market day when we come together for the week's provision. People who labor day in, day out, can find rest as they come together and worship God. But the rule of the synagogue got it completely backwards. Not only did he highlight the law above people, essentially saying that, that man was made for the Sabbath, but he rebuked the Lord of the Sabbath, insinuating slanderously that the Lord of the Sabbath was a Sabbath breaker. He was rebuking the Lord of the Sabbath for breaking the Sabbath. Well, immediately, we see 
Luke's inspired interpretation of the ruler's judgment. He says, Then the Lord answered him. Luke does not recognize this man's authority. Rather, he recognizes the Lord's authority. The ruler of the synagogue does not know who Jesus is, but Luke does. The Lord Jesus does not recognize the ruler's authority either. He rebukes the rebuker, revealing that he himself is the one who has authority here. It says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Jesus is going to revisit this again at the beginning of, of chapter 14, saying something very similar in verse 5. Now these legalists, the, the Pharisees and, and their compatriots, accepted the Mishnah's teaching that an animal could be cared for on the Sabbath. The Mishnah ta taught specifically that an animal could be led by a chain as long as there was no burden involved and that someone could draw water for an animal as long as the, 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 the man giving the water and the animal didn't hold a bucket for it. Again, these, in these minutiae, they were straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. And again, as we've, we've just seen, that there's a complex system of rules in the Mishnah for who can and who cannot be healed on the Sabbath. In chapter 14, 3, Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And there, the people remain silent. But Jesus responds by healing the man with dropsy right there in front of them. Friends, the law of God says nothing about healing on the Sabbath being a sin. There is nothing in the Bible prohibiting healing on the Sabbath. Yet these legalists, these Pharisees, did not allow that this woman could be healed on the Sabbath. But the Lord Jesus is being revealed as the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord, not just over the Sabbath, but he's the Lord over all things. Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords. And he continues in verse 16. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus calls them hypocrites. Plural. He's rebuking the ruler of the synagogue and he's rebuking all who agree with him. This ruler has condemned himself with his own words. And they all, all who align with him, have condemned themselves with their behavior. It's clear that that fig tree is not born fruit. It is still barren. Jesus here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If, if a daughter of Abraham, one of the people of God, is before, is, is she not more important than these animals? If you're going, to, if you're going to, to take care of an animal on the Sabbath, should you not take care of a daughter of Abraham, one of God's own people? Works of necessity and works of mercy are not only allowed on the Sabbath, they are encouraged on the Sabbath. J.C. Rowell explains that the Sabbath command to do no work was not intended to prohibit works of necessity and mercy. The Sabbath was made for man's benefit, not for his hurt. It was appointed to promote man's best and highest interests, not to debar him of anything that is really for his good. It requires nothing but what is reasonable and wise 
It forbids nothing that is really necessary for man's comfort. Friends, the Sabbath is an opportunity. The Sabbath provides an opportunity you do not get on the other six days of the week. It's an opportunity for rest, for fellowship, for worship, for serving others. Many years ago, on a Saturday afternoon, I received a call from a friend. And he said, hey, John, what are you, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, well, it's, it's Sunday. I'm going to be going to church. And, and it was Christmas Eve as well. So I was going to go to church and I'll be spending the day with my family. I said, why? What's up? He said, well, my father just died. And I was wondering if you would come snowboarding with me. I said, dude, I'm going snowboarding with you tomorrow. So I was able to go and, and to spend the day to encourage my friend, an, an unbeliever. And then that led to an opportunity to preach the gospel at his father's funeral. Now, I, my favorite place to be on Sunday is at church with God's people. But in that moment, I had an opportunity to perform a work of mercy that's entirely in line with God's intention for the Sabbath. Jesus didn't say to the woman, take two Advil and call me in the morning. He didn't want her to suffer for one minute longer. She's already suffered for 18 years. We might be asking, well, well, if he could heal her, if he's really sovereign, why did he let her suffer at all? Well, the answer is there in verse 13. She glorified God. We talked about this earlier in chapter 13, about why God allows suffering. We, we often do not suppose, know specifically what God is doing in each case, but we do know that God is using it for his glory and for the good of his people. And so in performing this miracle for the glory of God and demonstrating his authority to interpret and to apply the law, the Lord Jesus is revealing who he really is. Then in verse 17, we see the response to Jesus' rebuke. The ruler of the synagogue and, and all were, who were on his side were ashamed. Their hypocrisy had been exposed they, and they were, they were ashamed for it. But there were others, those who were on Jesus' side, who rejoiced. Now we don't know, maybe some of those who were ashamed actually became those who rejoiced. But at least for now, there's division. There's division. The gospel divides, and Jesus Christ is the dividing line. Yes, many do reject him, but some believe in him. And it seems that some in this crowd have actually heeded Jesus' warning and had turned to him in repentance and faith. He's been talking about this since the beginning of chapter 12. But again, what about you? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you heeded Jesus' warning? Do you recognize who Jesus is? Are you walking with Jesus in repentance and faith? The kingdom of God is advancing. Are you part of his kingdom? So we've seen the woman healed and the Lord revealed. Well, finally, let's consider the kingdom concealed. Verses 18 to 21. 
Here, verses 18 to 21, Jesus presents two brief parables that answer the question, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Now, you notice at the beginning of verse 18 that Jesus uses the conjunction, therefore. So Jesus is, is sorry, Luke, rather, is linking Jesus' teaching on the kingdom here in verses 18 to 21 with what he's just taken place in verses 10 to 17. So these two events are, are linked. This teaching on the kingdom is linked with what has just transpired. Now, at first glance, it might be hard to see the connection. However, what's happening here is that, that Jesus is really describing what has just taken place. The kingdom of God is advancing, despite the fact that its advance is hidden from many eyes. And both of the parables that, that Jesus is about to teach here depict small things being hidden, a tiny seed in the earth, and a relatively small amount of leaven hidden in three measures of flour. But both will have a powerful impact, despite their seemingly insignificant beginnings. Jesus is describing the pervasive and the permeating advance of the kingdom as it spreads through the nations and through the lives of all true believers. Yet the kingdom's advance remains hidden from the eyes of most. Again, we've just seen this very thing. Jesus has miraculously healed a woman who's been in bondage to a debilitating illness for 18 years. But all the ruler of the synagogue was concerned about was a legalistic, man-made interpretation of the law. However, this woman, insignificant in the eyes of most, including the ruler of the synagogue, glorifies God. And this is what the advance of the gospel most often looks like. This is how the kingdom usually advances. With small and insignificant things. So in verse 18, Jesus asks, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Well, before we discuss what the kingdom of God is like, let's briefly look at what the kingdom of God is. We talked about this back when we studied the, the model prayer. The kingdom of God is God's reign and rule. In the second petition of the, the Lord's Prayer, or probably more aptly, aptly called the model prayer, or the pattern prayer, the second petition is, as Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. And so we pray that, that as until the consummation, the kingdom of God is, is best described as, as not an institution or as a place, but as the presence of God's power in the hearts of his people. In the hearts of the elect. Adolf Safir says, the kingdom of God is the summary of the whole scripture revelation, sorry, the scripture revelation from Genesis to the apocalypse. It reveals the purpose, the hidden meaning, and the final consummation of all history. This is the kingdom of God. So then, in this current time, what is the kingdom of God like? Well, in the first parable that Jesus uses to answer, in verse 19, he uses, describes it as that of a, of a mustard seed. The, the smallest seed that was known in the region of Palestine. This tiny little seed 
grows into a, a tree that's almost 14 feet high. It has bright yellow flowers and a, a thick canopy, well suited for birds to nest in. Jesus repeats this parable on another occasion as recorded in Matthew and Mark. We ask the question, well, what is the significance of birds nesting in this tree's branches? Now, this could be taken more broadly, but, but I believe the answer is found in the prominent Old Testament image of, of the birds nesting in branches being symbolic of the nations of the earth. You see this in Ezekiel and Daniel. The kingdom of God will be universal. People from all nations, not every person, but elect from every nation, will find shelter in the kingdom of God. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will find faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the second parable is similar. Jesus asked the question, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? And here he compares the kingdom to leaven hidden in three measures of flour. Three measures or three sayas of flour would be about 50 pounds of flour, enough to feed over 100 people. But the yeast works its way through the whole ball of dough. A small amount of yeast would be enough to to penetrate and to permeate the whole three pounds of flour. Again, this parable could be taken more broadly, but but again, I, I believe the answer could be found in another prominent image, this time from the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, we see that the leaven refers to what takes place in the human heart, and there it's referring to the, the spread of sin. But the image is, is equally applicable to the spread of, of the kingdom in the heart of a person. The effects of the Holy Spirit in, in regeneration and sanctification in the life of a believer. A little bit of yeast. A little bit of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is really a, a massive amount of work in the life of the believer, even though it looks like a small thing, will permeate and penetrate the whole of the believer's life. When the gospel hits the heart of a man or a woman who's been being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, there's, the person doesn't all of a sudden begin to glow. It doesn't look like all of a sudden they're, they're floating above the ground. To many, it looks as if the person's still identical, it's still the same person, but a radical transformation has been taking place on the inside. The biggest change that takes place in the, in the life of a person who's regenerated by the Holy Spirit is that first work, the granting of a new heart. And then gradually, throughout the course of life, life begins to change through the power of the Holy Spirit and, and through the effects of the means of grace that God gives. If you'd only see with your spiritual eyes that takes place in a man or a woman who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the person has been removed from the kingdom of darkness and has immediately been translated to the kingdom of God. But the dough doesn't change itself. The dough is acted upon through the power of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the proclamation of God's word. Again, his work 
is, is not always immediately visible, but the person will be set free, in some cases, very quickly from life-dominating sins. Others, some relatively quickly, but, but others take time and holy sweat and the power of the Holy Spirit. As God works in heart, creating increased appetites for the Word of God and prayer and fellowship, you increasingly begin to hate what you once loved and love the God who you once hated. The kingdom will spread in the life of the believer, slowly but inexorably forward. It will leaven the whole lump. The whole person will be transformed, mind, will, and emotions. Now, I know sometimes it feels like it's a matter of of three steps forward and two steps back, but the trajectory is always forward. You step back and look, you'll see that the person is always growing and changing and being made more like Jesus as they've been predestined to be. Can you see your trajectory over the the past several months and, and years? Ask those closest to you if they see evidences of grace in your life and be on the lookout for evidences of grace in one another and encourage them when you see fruit. This glorifies God. The kingdom advances in seemingly small things like the healing of this poor woman. Not in the upper echelons of society and and of power. The Jews expected the kingdom to arrive quickly, comprehensively. But Jesus teaches that the kingdom comes gradually, slowly, but come at will until its final consummation. And then it will come immediately. When Jesus comes to came to inaugurate the kingdom, it, it appeared to be weak and small. It was not among the movers and the shakers. Not in the halls of power. And really not much has changed in that regard. The gospel began in an outpost of ancient Rome, a conquered country began with a crucified Savior. Jesus Christ was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles and often looked like the smoldering wick of a fledgling church would be snuffed out. If not by the Jews itself, then by the Romans. But the kingdom of God would advance. The apostles, a ragtag band of fishermen and tax collectors and nobodies, were used of God to advance His kingdom. In Acts 1.8, Jesus promises them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And within a few centuries, the known world was in the grips of the gospel. Europe and much of Asia and northern Africa all had vibrant and growing churches. Now, there have been dark times, but the gospel continued to advance. During the Reformation, through men like Luther, like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, the Reformation, in the Reformation, the kingdom continued to advance. During the First Great Awakening, through men like William Carey in India and George Whitfield in England and America, the kingdom of God advanced. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God continues to advance through people like you and people like me. Whenever you preach the gospel to someone, 
whenever you live the gospel in front of someone, whenever you encourage a brother or sister, whenever you pray, whenever you read the word, whenever you pray your kingdom come, God is using you to advance his kingdom. Now, others may not see it, but you will see it. As Jesus taught in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Others may not see the kingdom of God, but through the enlightening and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you and I do. You and I will see its advance. And you and I will see its consummation. Do not despise small things. These are troubling times. There are many burdens that we feel. I don't know about you, but, but many mornings I, I wake up and, and very soon after I wake up, I, I'm aware of, of all that's wrong in the world. Maybe you're the same as me in that regard. Wouldn't you be encouraged if the Lord were to come to you and to say, you, say to you personally and clearly, don't worry. Everything is going to work out well in the end. You're going to be amazed when you see what I do. You will glorify me when you see what I do. Wouldn't you be elated? You would walk through this or any trial with holy confidence. If God were to tell you personally and clearly that his kingdom is going to come, you would have a different attitude. But you know what? He has told you. God has told you clearly and personally that his kingdom will advance. Brothers and sisters, God has spoken to you personally and clearly in his word. We'll look at this next week, Lord willing, in, in verses 29. The people will come from the, uh, Luke 13, 29, is the people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus has just said in this parable, that the, this little seed is going to go into a tree in which the birds of the nest, the nations are going, the birds, the, the birds are going to nest in this tree. And until that time and forever, Christ has made us, you and me, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Romans 1, Revelation 1.16. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you tell us in your word to pray your kingdom come. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would advance in our hearts through the conversion of many, through the proclamation of your word and the power of your spirit in your church. We pray that your, continuum, that your kingdom would continue to advance all the way until your return. And we pray for the consummation of your kingdom. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, until your return to continue to look with the promises that you have given us in your word that your kingdom will advance. That no matter what happens around us, that you are at work 
for the expansion of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. Amen.